When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The following podcast contains explicit language. So how long has this been going on, this, this thing? <laughs> how long? <laughs> Four months. Four months. Mm. Uh, five months, actually. She's right. I'm wrong. Attaboy. Better get used to saying that. <laughs> I, please. I'm so sorry. Oh, yeah. Hey, all, and welcome to Represent. I'm Aisha Harris, your host, and that clip you just heard is from last weekend's number one movie, Get Out, the directorial debut of Jordan Peele. Some listeners have wondered if we were going to talk about it on the show, and the answer is, of course. I'm a huge Key and Peele fan and also love horror, so I was looking forward to this as much as you all were. My incredibly smart colleague, Jamal Bowie, joined the show today to dig into a spoiler-filled discussion of the movie's many, many layers. But first, now that we are finally out of Oscar season, we're bringing back our pre-woke watching segment, Woot woot! In case you're new to the show, pre-woke watching is a chance for us to ask folks about the movies and TV shows they once loved unreservedly, but now look upon with a more critical eye towards how it represents race, gender, sexuality, whatever. Okay, ready? Here's our latest installment. Today, I have my colleague, Valerie Woolard Srinivasan, who is a software engineer at Panoply. Hello, Valerie. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. And why don't you tell me what your pre-woke watching experience is today? So I wanted to talk about the show Friends. Ah, um, perfect. Because <laughs> it was a show that I loved and watched all of the time in high school and as a teenager, but revisiting it in 2015, 16, 17, especially its treatment of gender and sexuality is really off-putting. Mm-hmm. So I, I get the sense that you've rewatched many episodes many times at this point. Yeah, so I definitely watched it a lot. I th- think I watched it the first time in middle school when it was still on the air in the early 2000s mm-hmm. and um, definitely had many seasons on DVD, watched them over and over again, and didn't really revisit it much since then. But when it came on Netflix in 2015, I think, I think is when a lot of people started rewatching it and kind of realizing that it was problematic in ways that we didn't realize probably the first time that we saw it. Mm -hmm. And I rewatched a little bit then. That was also the first time that my husband had ever seen it. So, like, he was seeing it through fresh eyes and seeing all of those things. So that was an interesting experience to have, too. So what in particular is on the gender front uh, sticks out to you the most? 
Yeah, so there's Ross's ex-wife who uh, leaves him for another woman, and she's a lesbian, and she and her partner are raising uh, their child together. And rewatching episodes, I noticed that just the word lesbian is always just a laugh line. Mm -hmm. Like, all they have to do is say lesbian, and everyone cracks up. And you never knew she was a lesbian. (laughs) No, okay? Why does everyone keep fixating on that? She didn't know. How should I know? Sometimes I wish I was a lesbian. Did I say that out loud? And I think that's just a a reflection of the different time that that was. It originally aired in 1994, so it's amazing to see how much the world has changed in just that short of a, a time frame that those things I don't think would be acceptable at all on TV today. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be a common uh a common problem for a lot of TV shows in the 90s and even the ni- in the aughts, which is anytime something even remotely gay or saying the word homosexual, like it's just like tee hee hee. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, related to that sort of femininity in the series is treated, at least when the male characters exhibit any sort of femininity, it's treated as being something sort of inherently bad. Like there's an episode where Joey starts wearing women's underwear just because he likes that there are lots of different options and he can get lacy kinds and it. Uh, <laughs> I'm beginning to see what Jake was talking about. Uh-huh. The silk feels really good. <laughs> yeah. And, and things aren't as smashed down as I thought they were going to be. It's great, Joe. And it's treated as this like, inherently bad thing that he would potentially enjoy wearing women's underwear or enjoy something that is not intended for men that or or i imagine the idea that like if a guy doesn't conform to these very strict male stereotypes that like he might be gay or there's like might be something wrong with him like ridiculous right and so what are the conversations like for you and your husband in terms of like him watching the show for the first time. I think the thing that was really jarring for him was the treatment of Chandler's dad Mm. in the series. And Chandler's dad is, it's not really clear whether he's transgender or whether um, he's just a drag queen, but he performs in drag in a Vegas show. And Chandler has cut him out of his life in the extent to which it's explained in the series, basically just because he is a drag queen and he just doesn't want to be involved with him at all. And again, any time he was mentioned as a character, it was just kind of a, a punchline. And Chandler isn't initially planning to invite his dad to his wedding. Um, I rewatched that episode recently he made out with Mr. Garibaldi was the, the line that keeps getting repeated. And one of the reasons that Chandler cites for not inviting him to the wedding is that no one's going to be looking at the bride if the father of the groom is in a backless dress. So there was some element of like Chandler's father was just a distraction or distraction or in it for the attention or 
something along those lines. And it's never really made clear that this behavior by Chandler is like not okay or a problem in any way. In a way, in a way that also feels sort of like denial, right? Like this isn't a real thing. You're just doing this to to spite me or to maybe not to spite, but to right. You know, even though even according to the narrative of the series. Um, he has been this way since Chandler was in high school. And what about you? Like, is there now that you are a much more open minded and and also the fact that this country as a whole has just shifted completely in its attitudes towards women? Well, to some extent, <laughs> we do have Trump uh, and how GBT, at least entertainment media has shifted a lot. How do you feel about watching the show now? Like the way it handles these topics, is that something where now you just maybe that's the last time you're going to binge watch Friends or will you revisit it? I think it's still enjoyable in some ways. There are things that are charming about it. I don't think it's treatment of gender or sexuality or we haven't even gotten into like the issue of Monica and her weight loss and so forth and the way that it treats um, fat people, I guess. Um, I don't think those things are good. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't really expect the gender um, or social politics of past culture to reflect the current culture. I think it's kind of a window into how we felt at that time um, and how much we've evolved since then. I'm, I still enjoy reading Raymond Chandler books, even though Me there's too. a lot of sexist stuff in there. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. So I think to some extent you just have to acknowledge how things have changed, how we might say or do things differently now, but still be able to enjoy the culture for what it was. Yeah. One, my last question for you, and this this came up in another pre-woke watching segment we did with my other colleague, um, AC Valdez, when we talked about the Jungle Book. So I guess my other question would be, so you still find it charming, you'll still watch some of it, and you acknowledge these things. So say you have a son or daughter, and 10, 12 years from now, they want to start watching Friends. Will you let them watch Friends? I think I would let them, but I think I would definitely want to have these conversations with them as the issues were coming up in the show Mm -hmm. um, and sort of go through how those things make me feel and how much the world has changed in, in the time since this first aired and how the way people acted in that show were not okay or things that would be okay now. Yeah. I think that's a totally valid thing to do because I feel like we can, we shouldn't pretend that those things didn't exist because how else are we going to know what not to do anymore sure um so i i think that's a great way and it's it's a good learning tool yeah well thank you so much valerie it was great hearing your pre-woke watching experience and you should definitely come back on and share more i'm sure you have many more don't we all (laughs) of course (laughs) thank you so much for having me The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So now we turn to Jordan Peele's horror satire, Get Out. Jamel and I had a ton to talk about, so we'll just jump right into our conversation. But just a heads up that there will be an abundance of spoilers here because it's very hard to deeply discuss it without them. So if you haven't seen it yet, go see it and then check back in with us afterwards. Let's go. So Jamel Bowie, welcome back to the show. Hello, and thank you for having me back. I'm always uh, happy to talk movies with you. Yeah, I'm excited. Um Jamal joins me from the DC offices in Slate, so I cannot see him, but he is here in the Brooklyn studios in spirit. Um, and I guess we should maybe just give everyone a little bit of a, a brief summary of what the, sh- the movie is about. Um, essentially, it is a horror satire, and it's about a man named Chris, who is played by Daniel Kaluuya. Does that sound right? I, I, that's that's how I've been saying it, Daniel Kaluuya. Yeah. So um, if that's wrong, then I guess I hope I hope Daniel lets us know. Yes, please let us know, Daniel, <laughs> if you're listening. <laughs> uh, played by Daniel Kaluuya, who, when I was watching the movie, I actually forgot. I was trying to place where I'd seen him before, and then I realized he was in that really great episode of Black Mirror from, like, t- the first season, I think. Did you watch Black Mirror? I didn't watch Black Mirror. Oh, okay. So he's this really great British actor who's in the first season of Black Mirror. It's the one where it's like set in this weird like reality show. Like it's like American Idol, but a, a Black Mirror version of it. It's like really twisted and people have to like work hard for likes and, and vote for people who are going to get off the reality show. It's it's weird. Anyway, he's great in it. Um, and he plays Chris Washington, who is about to embark on a weekend with his girlfriend's parents. And his uh, he's going to meet them for the first time. And his girlfriend is white. And her name is Rose. And she's played by Allison Williams. And uh, because this is from Jordan Peele, uh, who is known as uh, half the duo of Key and Peele. And he and Key were known for their really smart takes on race, especially within the horror genre. And we have uh, all of that kind of happening here, but in a much more twisted and dark and extended way. Uh, so I think that's that's probably enough of a summary. We get, we'll get into the details more. But first question I should ask is, what was your crowd, what was the crowd makeup generally of like the screening you saw? So the the crowd makeup at the screening I went to was sort of one part critics. And mm-hmm. I guess it was just kind of a thing where people could invite whomever. So it was one part critics and then a lot of just, you know, regular movie going people. And yeah. the regular movie going people were mostly black. I think everyone sitting around me was black. And then the critic crew was like a mix of, of uh, you know, white critics and black critics. Yeah, that sounds about the, like our makeup as well. And the black audience was like very vocal in ways that I always love. And ah, I'm so glad I saw it with that crowd because they were just all over it. So what were your initial thoughts on the movie? So I have to say going into the movie, I was not entirely sure what to expect. I mean, I knew it was a horror movie. I knew it dealt with race. I kind of steeled myself for you know being surprised or scared a little bit. Um, but... One thing coming out of the movie, I had a bunch of thoughts, but like the two things that were kind of immediate were 
uh, a how funny the movie is. Like even you know it's it's billed as kind of a as you said as a satire, but it's very funny mm-hmm. um, and has lots of great jokes. And a friend of mine afterwards even said that you could think of the entire movie as being the long and elaborate setup for like a final punchline at the end, um, uh, which we can get into later. But yeah. I thought that was an interesting observation, and it is so smart on race and racism. <laughs> I guess I had read a lot about how it was, uh, you know, the villain is liberal racism and everything, but I really think that sells short uh, the extent to which Get Out really does kind of um, literalize a lot of different manifestations of racism. For sure. I mean, I went into this... Uh, well, for I should probably point out, I, I've gotten a lot of questions from people who are like, is this movie really scary or like, will I be OK? Like people who aren't big horror movie fans. Um, and I'm maybe not the best person to ask that question because I am a big horror movie person. So what I find scary, you might not find scary. Um, but I would say that, like, for those who are listening, it's more like it's scary in the like being a black person in America is scary in that way, as opposed to like, there aren't too many like jump scares. They exist. Like there's a moment, there's a couple moments, especially with the the black uh, groundskeeper and maid who are at the house in upstate New York where we go and meet Rose's family. But other than that, like it's really more psychological, I think. I, I don't know if you'd agree with that. It, I wasn't like scared in that sense. I, I was sort of more made uneasy by everything. So I guess, yeah, psychological. Yeah. And that is what bothered me. And and, they, and also just how it was shot, right? That, like, there are so many of these, like, tight close-ups and, and um, uh, the soundtrack is, like, very eerie and you know something is wrong, but you can't quite place it. Yeah, I mean, the way he, in which he plays with all of these conventional horror tropes and, I mean, just to get right into it, like, the, the opening scene is sort of this... It's the thing that you see in every pretty much every horror movie, whether it's Halloween or Jaws or the Stephen King adaptation of It, where you have like the person at the beginning, you don't know who they are. They're probably not going to be a central character later on in the movie. They're like by themselves. And then all of a sudden something like the monster that we're going to encounter throughout this film gets them. Uh, he takes them in a vulnerable position and then they're like brutally murdered. Um, sometimes these people might even be the teenagers having sex or something so that we can comment on the fact that they're being promiscuous and then they get murdered right away. And so they exit the story and never come back. So he plays with that by opening with Lakeith Stanfield, who I've stand for very hard uh, on Slate.com and just also in life. I think he's amazing. He, <laughs> he is um, he's. Darius on uh, Atlanta, the show Atlanta, but you've also seen right. him in so many other things. And so he plays essentially this this opening horror movie trope at the beginning and he's walking the suburbs. And I just thought it was so perfect. It was really funny the way in which he like, unlike every other horror movie in which it's always like a white person, you know, usually eh, often it's a woman or a young, like attractive woman. 
who's being attacked, he like immediately he doesn't go towards the sound or like when the van, there's a white car that pulls up um, while he's walking in the suburbs at night by himself. And he's like kind of lost. And as soon as a white car like slows down and starts following and he's like, nope, not today. <laughs> and I thought that was just funny because it played into directly like the idea that black people aren't stupid in that way. <laughs> <laughs> like you can you can sense when something is going awry and him being in that white space in that very that suburban area where he doesn't know anyone. And I think like the obvious parallel to be had is like Trayvon Martin and the fact that he wasn't supposed to be in that Florida suburb. Uh, and, you know, obviously that led to his murder. Right. And I, I mean, sort of the the movie kind of plays with those, not just the the suburban trope, but also this notion that uh, kind of rural life is like off limits to black people, right? Mm-hmm. That like there's something strange about a black person going into a rural place, which is like in in, in reality not true at all. Um, I myself am from a family that's mostly in the rural South. But in the film, Chris is sort of unfazed by any of it. He's unfazed by um, on their way there, they hit a deer and there's like the shock of them hitting the deer, but then he's basically sort of okay afterwards. Right. Um, and he's, he's, he's unfazed by the fact that uh, Rose's parents basically live in the middle of nowhere. Um, although that isolation, of course, becomes um, a problem for him uh, once he realizes uh, what is going on. Right. And I think that it's worth pointing out here that Peel, Jordan Peel, he's talked about the inspiration for Get Out. And he says that it, it occurred to him around the time of the 2008 campaign with between Obama and Hillary that we were moving into, as he saw us moving into this era where we tried to make post-racial happen. <laughs> and the idea that, you know, racism doesn't exist anymore now that we have a, a black president. And how that sort of lulls us all, including black people to some extent, into a complacency and this sort of false uh, belief that things are better and that we shouldn't be worried. We shouldn't uh, have our guard up at all times. So Chris seems to like very much embody that. Um, you know, he, he has a little bit of he's still I mean, he's still a black man in America and he still has some awareness, like the fact that he asks his girlfriend, Rose, before they leave, like, do your parents know I'm black? Um and you can tell he's like the fact that she says no and seems like totally OK with the fact that they don't know. You can tell he's a little like uneasy with that. But then right. he still goes. <laughs> and as the movie progresses and things get weirder, it still takes him quite a bit of time to like he's using all these things to justify why these weird things are happening with the groundskeeper and the maid. I mean, it basically takes Chris until the end of the movie um, uh, when it's almost too late. Uh, for him to to figure out what exactly is happening here. Yeah. So, what do you make of? Uh, let's let's start. There's so many different characters and so many layers here to unpeel. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, that was not intentional. Oh God. Okay, I just realized. <laughs> Unpack. <laughs> let's go into like when he, when he first meets the family because all three of them. Her mother, played by Catherine Keener, is a psychiatrist and also uses hypnosis, which is like the first red flag. Um, she keeps saying, oh, if you're they, they find out that he's trying to quit smoking and she says she can use hypnosis to 
help him get over that. And then you have her father, Rose's father, played by Bradley Whitford, um, who <laughs> likes to insist that he would have voted for Obama a third time. I mean, we've seen that trope in, I think, a lot of black TV shows, especially, where it's like you have the, the white guy who tries to be down. But here it's way more uh, sinister, especially the scene. Do you remember the scene where um, they talk about uh, them hitting the deer? Yes. Yeah. They're talking about the the deer they hit earlier, and her dad has a bunch of things to say about that, uh, including, you know, if I see if I see a deer on the side of the road, I say that's a start. Although I'll say, okay, I'll say two things. The first is that I share the attitude about deer as, as somebody who grew up around <laughs> a lot of them. Um, they are kind of just glorified uh, rodents. Yeah. They, um, so you think they should all just die? Yeah, I'm sort of uh, pro pro uh, anti deer sentiment. Um, but the second thing I'll say is that the I thought the casting of Whitford in particular was really inspired, given how much he is associated with the kind of uh, '90s um, '90s like quasi liberalism through the West Wing, right? That like mm. he. He represents um, from his acting career and his continued involvement with kind of the world of the West Wing, um, a kind of prototypical white liberal. Yeah. And so making making him uh, not just uh, the person in Rose's family who is um, kind of engaged in the sort of, hey, I'm down with black people uh, thing, but also, as we later find out, um, the one uh, to can I can I can we just like say this now? Oh yeah, I mean, we're if you, if we're you, gonna warn if everyone. You're listening, yes. Yeah. Spoilers will abound, so no need to right. tiptoe. Okay, so he's also um, uh, sort of responsible for the surgery that transplants the brains of um, of elderly white people into young virile black bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it sort of it kind of makes that makes that perfect. I think we should definitely talk more about the the body transplants happening uh, soon. But before we get to that, there's a lot that happens in between. And again, I'm just going to say that we're probably not going to touch on every single thing because this is a movie that requires two viewings. And I myself have only seen it once, um, two viewings at least. And I don't know if you got to see it again uh, Jamel. No, I have I haven't seen it again yet. My um my wife isn't really into horror movies, and mm. I uh, need to find I need to f- recruit some people to go see it with me. Oh well, that shouldn't be hard. Um, <laughs> but going back to sort of the family members, uh, so we have the father, the mother, and then we also have the brother, who he was really creepy. Like I think he might have been the creepiest part. Um, at least like in the most superficial kind of surface way. Um, he reminded me of like Heath Ledger's, Heath Ledger's The Joker meets Macaulay Culkin as an adult. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know that sounds like shade. I guess it kind of is. He was just really scary looking. And his name, he's played by Caleb Landry Jones. I don't think I've ever seen him in anything else. I think I would remember that face. But he plays Rose's brother. And there's a scene uh, which also seems to like every, every every scene in this movie is like just laden with led in with so many different structural racism <laughs> in ways that um, I haven't seen in a movie quite before and done in such a good way, in such a perfect way. And the way in which he talks about um, they're going back and forth between Chris and Jeremy, her brother, and 
he's talking about what sports he plays. And he was it. Jeremy says he should have played MMA or was it Chris who it was that it was it was he says um, he asks what sport he plays. And then he says, you know, I play a little basketball. Oh, right. And kind of begins to go on about how he would be great for MMA. Right. And then uh, Chris is like, well, no, I I did some jujitsu back when I was, you know, younger. And then Jeremy says, well, you have the, the physique and the genetic makeup to play MMA, implying that MMA, which is like a very sort of contact sport and not so much strategic. Actually, he doesn't imply it. He actually like just straight out says it. It's just like straight up racist. Um, and some some really sh- stupid eugenic shit. Um, and that exchange, I thought, was just such a really brilliantly executed scene uh, that makes it feel really unhinged. I guess he doesn't really come back too much, though, which I guess was one thing that I, I thought was lacking. I thought after that scene between Jeremy and Chris, there would be like, more tension happening, but there wasn't as much. I don't know if you noticed that or had any similar feelings. No, I thought I, I, I noticed. That. I thought I thought sort of thought he was like a bit of a weak a weak link in all of it because his especially that dinner table conversation gets so weirdly sort of eugenicist and you know um, uh, what's he say your your physique is genetically you're genetically you know fit for this kind of thing. Um, that it kind of basically, if you don't notice something's up with his family at that, then you know, <laughs> right? It, it seems like <laughs> it seems like sort of out of the realm of like believability to that extent that Chris wouldn't be like, okay, <laughs> maybe right. I should leave. And I, one thing we're missing as well is that the first night Chris is at Rose's parents' house her mom hypnotizes him um, and makes him sort of relive the memories of um, his mother dying and him not going to try to help her. And this kind of paralyzes him psychologically. Right. Um, Meanwhile, you have his best friend, Rod, who is played by Lil Rel, Harry, (laughs) who I love on the Carmichael show. He's like really hilarious. I don't know if you've seen the Carmichael show. If you haven't, I, I, it's worth it. I haven't. No, we don't. We don't have cable at home, and so there's like a whole bunch of stuff. And I know I could probably watch it on Hulu or something, but I, I, if it's not like in my intentional things, I'm going to watch. I just like I'm not, never going to see it. I feel but it. maybe I should start because I really did enjoy him in the movie. Oh yeah, he's great. I mean, he's not a major character on that show, but he is. Whenever he's on, he's got some of the best lines, and here he gets like the majority of the laugh lines, and he's. Jamel, you and I were talking about this like right after we saw it last week. And you said something to the effect of like, he is basically our stand in. Uh, he's the black audience member. He's like the chorus that is yelling, like, quote, he's, he's yelling the title of the movie, like, get out. Don't go up there with that white woman <laughs> and her family up right. in the woods. Don't do it. I even want to tell you. What? I got hypnotized last night. Nigga, get the fuck out of here. Oh, yo, yo, yeah, yeah, to quit smoking. But it's Rose's mom's a psychiatrist, so... Bruh, I don't care if the bitches are Yana Von Zant, okay? She can't fix my motherfucking life. You ain't getting in my head. I know, she called me off guard, right? But it's cool, because... I'm cured. It worked. Bruh, how you not scared of this, man? Let's so after, you know, there's... It's after the dinner table scene. It's the next day when we see... Um, when the party happens and right. um, the family's friends 
come over for what is billed as just sort of an annual gathering that the family has with um, friends of uh, Rose's parents's Rose's father's father to her grandfather. Right. Um, and this I thought was both a very ominous sequence um, because it's here. It's here for me where I was like, I don't know exactly what's going on here, but this is like sinister as hell. Yeah. Um, and fi- it but felt all- very familiar too, I think. I don't right, know if it felt familiar what- to you for as like on a personal level of like having been in, in a situation or a environment like that. Exactly. That's exactly where I was going with this. That in addition to feeling sinister, I think anyone, I think any person of color, and I can only kind of speak uh, about how like other people, Black people, perhaps, um, but uh, black people who have been in elite spaces um, and largely white elite spaces probably have experienced something similar to what Chris in the movie does, which is a lot of older white people um, not really hiding uh, their um, their racism or racial contempt and even trying to present it as if it's somehow a compliment to you. Right. Um, so uh, in the movie, right, um, you have the one gentleman who's like, everyone wants to be black these days. Black is what's in. Mm-hmm. Um, in this sort of vaguely resentful way. Uh, and there is, there's a lot of, you know, Chris goes from person to person and and they're all saying things like that. One woman, like, you know, touches him and, like, squeezes his muscles and asks Rose uh, if uh, if sex with black men is actually better. Um, in front of him. Uh, he's standing right there. In front of him, right. He's standing right there. Uh, at one point, he has his camera, obviously trying to just get away from everything. And um, Rose's father uh, points in his direction and everyone starts waving at him. It's very strange. And I'll say for myself that I I've definitely have been in situations where people have said, like, you know, messed up shit to me. <laughs> Verilyn here. I will say that was the first indication that there was something with the girlfriend. The fact that she didn't react or, like, say, like, why you... Fir- well, for me, anyway. Oh, well, that's... Okay, so that's one thing I wanted to, wanted to ask is, like, when... I'm curious as to when you... When you thought... Like, I think we all at least black people probably assume that something might be up, but the movie does a fairly good job of like trying to keep you like, you're not sure if she's actually in on all of this or if she's like, just like a clueless white person who like the the cloud of liberal racism allows her to live in this space and ignore all of these things and weird things that are happening to Chris, even as she, he tells her these weird things are happening to him. Um, Or if she herself has been hypnotized. That- oh, I never even considered that an option, <laughs> but I guess that's possible. So, I think that the the, the note about the hypnotism hypnotism <laughs> is important because to go back to the scene with her brother, um, when he is when he's kind of getting out of hand, uh, uh, her mom kind of says in this very stern voice, "Stop!" Mm-hmm. and he just kind of stops. He stops, similar to the in a way that. Um, one of the the not the groundskeeper but the um the, the black woman yeah. the maid who is in the house stops and so I'm thinking maybe maybe what's going on here is that, like everyone's been like hypnotized mm-hmm. and that's sort of the the sinister thing here so I was thinking I was actually thinking that maybe Rose had been hypnotized as well interesting and I 
I don't think I this is this is why I'd have to watch it again because I'm not sure I don't think I sort of anticipated her being um uh part of the whole scheme. Um Huh. Interesting cuz I I did. <laughs> so I, when 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 did you pick when did you, when were you like okay something's up with her um she's she's part of this. I'm trying to think of I'm trying, I, to think of, I'm trying to like go through the movie in my head. Yeah. So, I mean, I was always suspicious from the beginning. Um, that's another, like, I think that as a black person watching the movie throughout, like, even if she weren't in on it, I think it's pretty clear that like, she's not exactly the best person he should be with. Uh, just because of like, she's, she's the definition of like your faux liberal or faux woke white person who like thinks that they are like so aware and know everything but like doesn't really um especially with that scene where after they've hit the deer on their way up to the uh up to the the, her parents house she like sasses the cop sir can i see your license please wait why yeah i have state id no 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 he wasn't driving i didn't ask who was driving i asked to see his id yeah why that doesn't make any sense here you don't have to give him your ID because you haven't done anything wrong. Maybe baby, it's okay. Come on. Anytime there is an incident, we have every right to That's ask. Cool. And he's like, yeah, we don't need to do that. <laughs> but she's like, why do you need to see his ID? And it's in a way that like a white girl who A, is high on her own whiteness and thinks that her being a white woman would be like can trump everything and that she can sort of save him. And sort of the... Indig- like her indignant manner at it all just seemed sort of put upon. So to answer your question, I think that I became almost certain that she was in on it. It was when um, they were, I, this was like, I think after the dinner or after like the dinner scene and the MMA scene and they're like up in their bedroom, like before the next morning, they're like doing whatever. And the way in which she's talking about, like she's recapping what happened with the cop and she says something along, like recapping everything that's happened so far this weekend. And she's like, I can't believe my parents are so racist. Um, And she says, and that cop fucking bummer. And like the way she said it just felt so facetious. Um, so that was sort of when it clicked for me and I was like, eh, something's up and you can't trust her. Okay. I was going to say they they have like a fight right before the party and I forget exactly what it was over, but I think that was a moment where I was like, okay, she's, she's extremely dense here in a way that's, uh, a problem. Yeah. But again, I I think, I feel like we've been talking around sort of the big reveal of the movie and I feel like. If we just we should probably let people know what that is, and which I think adds better provides better context for all of this. Agree. Uh, would you like to reveal? Sure. So one of the the threads of the movie, right, is that the two other black people um, at Rose's parents' house are like weirdly docile and weirdly um, uh, they behave in unusual ways. Uh, they are uh, content to almost like. The caricature of an enslaved person. Yeah, and I'll just and, I'll just note here that they are Walter and Georgina. They're the groundskeeper yes. and the maid, respectively. So Walter and Georgina interact with Chris in weird and bizarre ways. They do weird and bizarre things. 
Um, and Chris can't figure it out. He says to uh, his best friend, Yo, and it's the black people out here, too. It's like all in Mr. Movement. Because <laughs> they probably hypnotize. <laughs> and during the party, Chris uh, encounters a young black man who is who we saw at the beginning of the film. Um, he's the uh, one. Who, yeah, he's the one we like, see in the suburb. He's suburb and he's kidnapped. Um and here he is dressed like an, basically an elderly white man <laughs> and talking like an elderly white man. Good to see another brother around here. Ah, yes, of course it is. <laughs> Something wrong. So it's all very strange, um, uh, especially when later on Chris realizes that he recognizes him and that um, uh, his friend actually knows him. So we find out that what's happening here is that the community is using this psychological, this this sort of hypnosis to um, uh, basically turn black people that Rose brings to the community into quasi-zombies, like they, they don't have conscious... Uh, control of their bodies and then transplanting their brain surgery and Rose's father is a neuroscientist, a, a neurosurgeon transplanting the brains of elderly white people into the bodies of young black people and that Chris is obviously being uh, primed for all of this. One thing that I found interest weird I, I thought about it more and it, it made more sense to me but at first I was like Okay, I get why they want to like take the black body because, you know, the 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 film sets up all these very obvious clues as to like how fetishized the black body is. But then I was confused like when when it's revealed later on what exactly is going on um because I was like, well, so you're putting the white elderly families or elderly people's like brains into the black person's body but then they're still like even if they have the qualities so like walter is a very fast runner and we see that happen like we see that take place because at one point um chris goes out to to smoke and walter just starts running at him like for no reason um and that's a weird part um but then like you're an elderly white person, but now you're going to be a groundskeeper for the rest of your sentient being. Like, I don't know. That felt weird. Yeah, I wasn't really <laughs> sure. I mean, because I can get sort of conceptually that and, and I think it's really clever, right, that all of these people who think of themselves as, you know, think of themselves as tolerant also um, are they're sort of their their view of black people is like not dissimilar to a slave owner. Right. That like. Right. They, you know, they um, black people are 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 don't aren't really deserving of any like respect as people, just as sort of like bodies to be admired or used. So there's again so much to unpack here, and we're not going to get to all of it. So I want to sort of wrap it up here, but I think there's another thing we're missing here, which is white womanhood. <laughs> What is yes. this movie saying about that? Um, <laughs> because so obviously, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of the discussion has been around uh, the liberal elite and white liberal racism. Um, and we there's a vulture New York mag piece um, about that talks about the way in which Allison 
um, Williams, who is famous for being girls, uh, being on girls, uh, is sort of like the perfect person to play this character of Rose. And um, the way it's described, he's uh, the author says, Rose is the touchstone of normalcy for white viewers. She's the character we're meant to relate to, the one who argues with a policeman about racial profiling, the one who rolls her eyes at all the other white squares. But then, obviously, she turns into the villain. Right. I mean... So if you if we think of kind of the 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 evil in this movie as being white racism and it's how it's exploitative and how it um, objectifies and uses and destroys black bodies um, and black people, then it seems like Allison Williams is sort of an avatar of white womanhood. Um, so like white womanhood in the in in this country at least is idealized, right? It's you know white in in the in the in the racist narrative of whiteness white womanhood stands for beauty and it stands for um you know good conduct and and blah 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 you can kind of go down the list and um the movie seems to be saying that like first all that's bullshit um but second that white woman like you may be people you may be tempted to think that like white women cannot also embody kind of like racist monstrosity, but they can. Um, and that's part and part cell of what's so dangerous about racism. Um, and it's 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 funny, not funny, but it's sort of interesting to have watched this movie like a week or two weeks after that story dropped that the, the woman whose testimony basically um, killed Emmett Till, had fabricated mm-hmm. the entire story. Yeah, I, um, I was thinking about that while watching the movie. It was like... Ooh, okay, Emmett Till. It's like we have Trayvon, we have Emmett Till checking off all the boxes here. Yeah. Right. And one of the sort of the penultimate scene of the movie is Rose has been shot. Her, her the groundskeeper you find out is her grandfather in um in in an old boyfriend's uh body. And you see earlier that um Chris is not in fact the first black person Rose has brought home that um <laughs> that part she was had a, kind of hilarious. <laughs> yeah, well, it was kind of kind of hilarious. Um, but the, but Chris, uh, being strangled, he's being strangled by the groundskeeper and he uses his phone to take a picture with the flash on. And then the, the original person in there comes to the fore, takes the gun that Rose has and shoots her and then kills himself. So Rose is bleeding out on the, on, on the ground and Chris, um, thinks he's about to escape. And then a police car comes down the road. And at this moment, Rose smiles and begins to sort of like feign, you know, help, help, I'm being attacked, hoping, right, that the officer would come out, see Chris and just kill him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was – I thought the decision to have Rose do that is such – was such an um, – it was a commentary on white womanhood, right? It was a commentary on sort of how white womanhood – has played this role of um, of of destroying uh, black people, and this I mean, this actually you know, there's a way in which you can look at all the all the white characters is almost symbolic, right? You have you have the psychiatrist mother who kind of is this. Um, you can you can look as a stand-in for how uh, you know social science has been leveraged to marginalize black people and their humanity. You have 
the neurosurgeon father who can stand in for how medical science has done the same. You have the athletic brother who can stand in for how um, professional athletics does that and uses black bodies um, and, and, and abuses and destroys them. Um, you have uh, the the kind of crowd of older, basically explicitly racist white people who stand in for that whole thing. I mean, kind of everyone, if you want to look at it this way, plays a part symbolically. Um, the different ways in which um, uh, black people, the different ways in which forces of wh- white racism has exploited and um, and victimized uh, black people. Of course, it should be said that. Uh, it is not the police coming uh, to Rose's rescue. It is Chris's best friend, um, who is a TSA agent. <laughs> yes, and, as he tells us many times in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and he figures out what's going on um, yeah. and comes to his rescue. I have to say, and I think I said this to you when we were chatting last week, that I think the movie would have been sort of like way more pointed had it actually been a cop. <laughs> mm-hmm. Chris, had, Chris had died at the end. Um, but that might have been too bleak. Well, that's also I think when we when we did talk about it briefly, it, it reminded you. And then I went back and rewatched it after you mentioned this, the ending of Nightmare uh, or Night of the Living Dead, George Romero's right. original version, the 1968 version, which was like probably the fir- it, it was definitely the first sort of horror movie um, to feature a black protagonist and one who almost makes it to the end of the movie um, until he's actually shot at the end by cops. But um, I don't know. I think that the way it ended is actually kind of, it would have been more pointed, but I I liked the fact that it ended that way because the black guy finally made it to the end. <laughs> and right, yeah. it was great to see it wasn't just one black guy. It was two black guys who sort of came together um, and like, you know, one, one was helping the other out and one basically saved the other's life. So I don't know. I, I kind of like that sort of um, reversal of the way in which Night of the Living Dead ends. It's like a little more hopeful in a way. Right. It, it's almost it's almost I mean, I, Peel has said that Night of the Living Dead is like an influence. I think he has. Yeah, yeah for and sure. You could, and you could you could almost see it as um, uh, a fan of that movie. And I'm a fan of that movie saying, well, if I had a chance to do this scene, how would I do it and not have um, your black protagonist killed? Sort of how I, you know, I think I think we've talked about Creed before, but mm-hmm. Creed is definitely a movie for people who watch Rocky and were like, "Yeah, Apollo Creed is the man." Yeah, for sure. I guess we should wrap this up um, in lieu of a plus delta for this week. Why don't we just have some suggestions? If you like Get Out, if you love Get Out, what are some other things that people should check out? Well, if you have not watched. Key and Peel, um, you should do that. Uh, it's it's people praise it constantly, um, but I think that praise is well deserved. I think it might be along with Chappelle's Show, one of the one of the great uh, sketch comedy shows for the last fifteen years. So definitely watch Key and Peel. And since we've been talking about it, um, check out Ned of the Living Dead, which is a is genuinely groundbreaking, and I think still genuinely kind of tense and great. It, it's sort of it's in a lot of ways. It's definitely the template for the modern zombie movie still, but it's also a um, uh, very pioneering horror movie. So, um, yeah, check out 
and I think you should be able to find Night of the Living Dead pretty much anywhere. Yeah. Um, it's, I think it's in public domain even at this point. Yeah, I, I would not be surprised if it, if it hasn't. It's been close to a decade since I watched that movie, but I second both of those choices. Definitely watch Key and Peele. My choice would be check out The Stepford Wives, which is another film like Night of the Living Dead that Peele has said is an inspiration. The original version, not the 2004 version that stars uh, Nicole Kidman and Matthew Broderick and apparently is really terrible. It's not just terrible. It misses the entire point of the original film. Oh, God. Okay. Well, (laughs) don't watch that one. Watch the original, uh, the 1975 version, starring Catherine Ross, who you may recognize from The Graduate or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I watched it for the first time sort of in preparation for Get Out, and it's really fascinating the way in which, like, Peel has said he basically decided to take The Stepford Wives and what it's doing with gender dynamics and shift them to race. I just highly recommend it. It's it's creepy, and I feel like it set the template for a lot of the movies that have come after. And it's a really sharp satire. So that is my recommendation. Watch The Stepford Wives. Well, thank you so much, Jamel, for coming on again. It was a pleasure. And I'm so glad we were able to talk about a movie that we both really liked this time. Yeah, yes. <laughs> thank you for having me. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you, as always, for listening in to Represent. And thank you, Valerie, for revisiting all the cringeworthy moments of Friends with us. And to Jamel for helping me unpack Get Out. And I think I'll be unpacking this movie a lot more to come. Speaking of which, you can also check out a couple of other conversations I've had around Get Out on the Slash Filmcast podcast, which is out now. And we'll have a link to that in the show, as well as this week's Culture Gap Best. You can and you should subscribe to us on iTunes, Megaphone, Stitcher, or any other place you find your podcasts. And as we always say every week, if you haven't rated us yet on iTunes, please, please, please do so. It really helps us get our show in front of even more eyes and ears. Represent is produced by the lovely, amazing Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is Chief Content Officer of Panoply. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. And if you have any thoughts you want to share with us about Get Out, please head over to the Facebook page. The music you're hearing right now is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. 